Are you looking for a new job? Are you hiring right now but struggling to diversify your candidate pool? We have something that can help you, our job board. Head on over to revisionpath.com forward slash jobs to browse listings or to place your own. This week on the job board, we've got two remote positions. The first is with Interview Schedule, and they're looking to hire their first product designer. Second position is with Girl Get That Money, and they're looking to hire graphic designers. Also, Facebook is looking to hire a product design manager for the app's UI quality team. Companies, stop making excuses on your DNI efforts and post your job listings with us. For just $99, your listing will be on our job board for 30 days, and we'll spread the word for you about your job to our diverse audience of listeners. Get started with us and expand your job search today. Revisionpath.com forward slash jobs. You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast, a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Revision Path. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'm your host, Maurice Cherry, and this episode is brought to you by Facebook Design. To learn more about how the Facebook design community is designing for human needs at unprecedented scale, please visit facebook.design. Now let's get into this week's interview. I'm talking with Christian Howard, a narrative design strategist at SY Partners in the Bay Area. Let's start the show. All right, so tell us who you are and what you do. So my name is Christian Howard. I am a strategist and a narrative designer. I work at a company that is based in San Francisco and in New York, and I work as a strategist at a firm called SY Partners. Now, before we get more into your work with SY Partners, your background, etc., of course, with many of the interviews that we've done recently, I've been making sure to kind of hold space at the beginning just to ask, like, how are you holding up in the midst of this current time that we're in? I, I appreciate the, the question. Complicated, right? I am in a space where I have lived in Oakland, California, moved to Oakland from New York about three years ago, a little more, a little less. And this is honestly the longest time that I've ever been able to just live in my house without Mm. traveling or without traveling personally or professionally. So coming back and sheltering in place here has been comfortable in many ways, uncomfortable in lots of deep personal ways. But by and large, I've felt like I've been nesting. I've been taking care of my home. I've been you know, redecorating. I've just been very easy with myself. I haven't been pushing myself in to you know, build a new fitness routine or learn all of these skills that I have wanted to learn. I've just been kind of taking it moment by moment, day by day. I feel like that's kind of the best way really to do. I mean, really to just take all of this now is just try to handle it as best you can day by day. For me, sometimes it's hour by hour. Just trying mm-hmm. to see <laughs> how you get through the day. And I'm glad you mentioned that part about like not trying to, I guess, force yourself into a cycle of productivity. I, I think maybe early on during this quarantine period, I saw a lot of that where people were sort of, you know, saying like, oh, well, if you came out of this quarantine without a new skill, you didn't like mm-hmm. discipline, you just were lazy or whatever. Like no one has ever been through this. Like, yeah, 
let people go through the emotions that they need to have during this time and not judge them for not coming out on the other side with another bullet point they can add to their skill set. Exactly. There was a really beautiful thing that I heard pretty early on in this process. And it was someone saying that this is the first time that they've ever been able to feel empathy for a large number of other people. Because before empathy felt like this empty word, it felt like, how do I try and put myself in the perspective of another person and understand and recognize what they're going through. And this was for this person, the first time that they could say, no, I know how hard this is. And I know that it must be hard for other people. And I can also recognize that there must have been things that were hard for them before. And this is only making it worse. Mm -hmm. And I just thought that was a beautiful way to start thinking about, yeah, why, why would I push myself right now? I know how hard I push myself at work. I know how hard I push myself in community work. This is not the time in this global crisis where we're all living through trauma (laughs) that we need to try and uh, fit into this narrative of striving. So it just, it really settled into my body as something that I've been using to kind of frame how I want to exist and how I want to take care of myself. How has work been during this time? Has your employer been sort of exhibiting grace throughout this pandemic in terms of just getting work done now from home? I'll say that we moved into remote work. From my perspective, I was traveling at the time. I was in New York working with a team. And I feel like we moved into this space with a lot of ease. And I wouldn't say it was emotional ease as much as it was just this ease of saying, this is what we're expecting. This is what we're seeing on the horizon. This is how our clients are moving. How do we do this with a sense of trying to recognize the humanity in all of the the creations that we make with one another? We're a very collaborative company. Everything that we really do is is about um, centering that human connection and different experiences that we have. And so we jumped in with, you know, how do you have really awesome backgrounds on Zoom? How do you have backgrounds that mimic your lived environment at home or your workspace? So we had uh, people in the company taking pictures of the offices so that people could use those as Zoom backgrounds. We had a lot of meetings where instead of having this West Coast, East Coast, kind of office culture. Instead, what we had was everything that was on the West Coast and everything that was on the East Coast immediately went online for everybody to engage with. So we really became a sort of borderless company in the manner of about a week. And that really helped me to settle in and recognize that our our ops team, our tech team, everybody had a brand new remote channel that you could just hop into and get any of your questions answered as quickly as possible. Mm-hmm. So I think it really streamlined the way that we operate. And we're still trying to figure out how to serve our clients as best as we possibly can and, and how to connect like everybody is. But I think that we walked into this with a lot of energy and in a way that I was pretty proud of. Do you feel like there's been a change in the business? Um, I feel like there's been a lot of changes in the business. <laughs> I think that the work that we do, as I said, is very, very interpersonal. It's very um, hands-on so much of what we do are these very intimate in-person experiences and gatherings that we host for clients and that we host for ourselves and for friends of the firm. And so trying to figure out how to do that with a this virtual mediation has been a huge shift in how we practice and how we show up. On top of that, because so much of the work that we do, we're, we're a 
an office like many offices now that are, you know, open workspaces, lots of areas for collaboration and spontaneity, how we try and recreate that online is a work in progress trying to figure out what are the ebbs and flows of people's lives now that everybody's deeply integrated back into their personal lives and trying to find space for professional calls and client work, all of these things. We're, we're still transitioning in that way. And I don't mm -hmm. know if we'll find the, the perfect balance for that, just like everybody is doing this right now. I think it's just, just learning along with one another yeah. to try and find the best way. Yeah, I've been hearing how some companies now are like foregoing going back into the office for the rest of the year. I think I saw Twitter was saying that like, if you want to keep working from home, you can keep working from home. So mm -hmm. it seems like something that companies are now starting to really take a look at in terms of not just, I think remote work culture, but whether or not this still works with the way that the world is now. I mean, right now, as we're recording this, it's uh it's May 20th. when We're recording this. Every state right now is in some aspect of reopening maybe not fully but certain cities and certain states like every state is is at that point now so it seems like this is only going to be a forward trend so it's something that companies are going to have to really take time and examine mm -hmm. yeah that's definitely a moment by moment consideration that i see in our company and in the companies of all of my friends and family it's this like when do we go back outside again? You know, when do we go back to our offices? And then the other question is, do we want to go back? Do yeah. we have to go back? Yeah. So I'm taking that one day at a time and thinking through, you know, what's going to be best for me right now? I'm very, very privileged to be able to work from home, get things done and have a space that's safe and all of my resources kind of set up. So I feel pretty confident for myself that uh, I can maintain this pace for a little while, mm -hmm. for a little while longer, or for a long while. But I'm interested to see what these other companies start doing and how that really affects how people can can work in the future. Yeah. So let's talk about your work that you're doing at SY Partners. You mentioned being a strategist and that you also work with narrative design. Can you kind of explain more of that within the context of like projects or things that you work on? Sure. So at SYP, I am a strategist. And what that means kind of largely is that my work is to, so on a project team level, I work with designers, I work with program managers, and I work with principals, team leads, creative directors, and other people to really help our clients through what oftentimes are difficult moments of transformation. And so what SYP tends to do is come into companies when leaders are looking for, for instance, a new purpose, new vision, new values, new bold moves, things to really drive these large transformations globally in an organization and to reinforce or maybe even reimagine what the company can be. A lot of our work is working with these leaders who are globally impactful and want to bring purpose to the fore of everything that they do. My job tends to be as a strategist to help leaders to really see the elements of how to bring those changes to life. That can be anything from really working through what is a purpose? What does it look like to build a new North Star for an organization that can last the sort of test of time? What does it look like to build values that help people every single day to build new practices and new behaviors to live up to that purpose? 
or really looking at the the strategy to bring together a vision for the future and look at what are the concrete steps to getting that done and then what's the sort of larger overarching process that work helps me as a person who has a background in narrative design. My narrative design chops sort of come in because so much of the work that we have to do is storytelling. So much of the work that we have to do is about narrative. It's about building narrative. It's about creating interaction points within that narrative. And so as a narrative designer, that work comes in when I am looking across all of the different ways that we, for instance, need to tell the story of change and transformation within a company or even to a leadership team. And then building out experiences for people to really see that not simply as a concept, but as something that they want to and need to embody. And so it's creating those really intimate moments for people through games, through audio storytelling, through visual storytelling, through personal reflective moments, through really a a myriad of different avenues, helping people to claim those stories as their own and then see how they want to bring it to life for themselves. It sounds like SY Partners is the kind of company that is like uniquely positioned to handle something like the times that we're in right now, especially with so many companies going through restructurings and layoffs Mm -hmm. and et cetera. Like SY Partners comes in and can help them sort of change and adapt to this new world that we're in. A lot of the work that we do is helping people to see how they want to be in an ever-evolving world. And so I think we are uniquely built for that and uniquely cultivate a group of people who love looking at, I think one of the phrases that comes up a lot is sort of building a future that doesn't yet exist or looking into a future that doesn't yet exist and understanding who you want to be in that future. So that is the sort of premise that we always start with. It's the sort of aspiration that we hold and that we bring our clients into. And so much of the work that we're doing is collaborative with our clients. It's not us building off in a little sort of design space all on our own. It's making sure that everything that we do is seamlessly integrated into what clients want and need. And so it's informed by their own perception of the future that they want to build, but that might be a little bit out of reach right now. And I think that that's what really helps to ground it in something that feels tangible for them and actionable. Now, one of the projects I saw that you worked on was for uh, Starbucks coffee. For people that are listening, Starbucks, this was, I don't know, maybe about two or three years ago, I think there was this Mm -hmm. uh, unconscious bias training that happened in a number of different stores across, I think it was across the country, that dealt with an incident that happened at a certain, I think it was a Philadelphia Starbucks, where these two young black men were were racially profiled. Can you talk Mm -hmm. about that project? Like, how do you bring something that massive with that kind of scale to life? Sure. I'll say Starbucks has been a long time client, and uh, the leaders at Starbucks have been longtime friends and collaborators with SYP. And so when that happened, and this was the incident that you're talking about was in Philadelphia, um, where two unarmed black men were arrested while they were waiting for a colleague of theirs to show up. Mm -hmm. Um, And they were arrested because one of the partners at Starbucks, which is the term that Starbucks uses for all employees, one of the partners questioned these two men, said, that they needed to buy something to stay in the store. The two men responded and said, you know, we're we're more than happy to buy something. We'll we're just waiting for our colleague to show up and then, you know, we're all going to sit here and we'll definitely buy. And this partner 
called the police and the police showed up, barricaded the two men into the Starbucks and then arrested them. This was recorded by other patrons who were there and it became a viral video. Starbucks in this moment was absolutely as shocked as everybody else to be going through what was happening. And of course, this is happening in a you know, post-Ferguson world in, yeah. uh, in a time where there was so much just black death all over the television, all over the news, all over social media. And I think it was in this moment that this conversation had to arise. So the work that we were doing with Starbucks was not, I think, as it was very publicly mobilized in the media, it was not simply a diversity training. It was not um, a DEI sort of deep dive. It was a lot of different things for them. But this was a moment where SYP stepped in to say, the world doesn't know, doesn't know you the way that you believe in yourself and that you know of yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, that Starbucks is first and foremost, a third place, which is a sociological term that comes to mean if people get the reference, it's it's the sort of cheers is, is the third place where your first place is your home, where you're with your family. Your second place is maybe your school or your place of work or business. And your third place is that place where everybody knows your name. It's the place where you go for refuge. It's, it's uh, you know, a public park. It's a pool. It's your YMCA. It's that place where you can just rest and you can be yourself and you can expect to be taken care of. So Starbucks has always thought of itself as a third place. And to be that in any community, especially when you think of a Starbucks that you've passed anywhere in the world, to think of it being a gathering place where people can show up and have a first date, have an interview, meet up with friends, that is oftentimes how people know of Starbucks. And that is also mixed with this idea that it's just a coffee company. You know, it's just a retail spot where you go and you pick up your latte in the morning on the way to work. And so this incident in Philadelphia for Starbucks was a a real big wake up call to say, we're not showing up in the way that we want to show up. And this is just one stark example of something that we need to transform. We need to build new policies to talk about who is a customer, who gets to be in our stores and who's welcomed across the threshold. So what we did as SYP was we stepped in and we really elevated that story and we created something that wasn't about marketing or PR or anything like that. This wasn't an HR piece. This was something to really talk to every single partner in Starbucks and Starbucks decided to shut down every store in the United States and then moved on to the rest of North America. This was a moment to redefine what it meant to be a partner at Starbucks, but also what it meant to go to any Starbucks. And so as part of that, what they did was we helped them build this training. And the training was a self-guided, hours-long experience that Starbucks partners went through in their local Starbucks with their teams. And they were guided through the mission, the values of Starbucks. They were reminded of the responsibility of what it is to take care of customers, but they were also treated to a lot of very personal reflections on the ways in which they want to be taken care of, the ways in which they want to take care of one another, and the ways in which 
Starbucks will promise to take care of them. So it was this comprehensive moment of coming to the mission of Starbucks, which I believe is to inspire and nurture the human spirit, one cup and one neighborhood at a time. And to really live into that and say, how do we want to show up for this every single day? How do we want to not simply have this as words on a page or words in a store, but really how is this our call to action? Mm-hmm. And, and giving that back to people. So giving them a purpose that they could really believe in and stand up behind. And then also making sure that the company stands up and takes care of people in the way that they need to be taken care of. Given that something of again of that scale is so big, like where do you even start? Like, do you do you go to the top brass at Starbucks? Do they come mm-hmm. to you? How does this sort of project even come underway? I, th- I think you know for the listeners, they kind of want to know. Like, it sounds huge. I mean, closing stores, it, giving a training is one thing, but yeah. it sounds like all of this had to be developed kind of from the ground up. You couldn't just. <laughs> purchase something out the box it was for us an all hands on deck moment of a a team of people on our side that were dedicated to this 24 hours a day for a very short i mean this was weeks just a couple weeks i want to say maybe two part of me is, is struggling to remember because it was all such a blur at the end but this was happening simultaneously a lot of different things were happening simultaneously at starbucks headquarters in our new york office there were things happening at different places all over the country we were creating different modules that ended up becoming part of this self-guided experience and then we were immediately testing them with starbucks partners all over we were getting feedback from I think it was upwards of about 50 different community stakeholders, lawyers, legal scholars, diversity, equity, and inclusion experts, social justice activists. I mean, we really had so many different people that we were looking to and we were saying, does this help to mitigate harm? The thing that we did not want to do was create something that was going to show people their own oppression and use that as a way to say, hey, this company also believes in you. Mm -hmm. This was something to say, no, we understand that the roots of this action are deeply woven into the fabric of the United States. We understand that the roots of what's going on here are deeply woven into our collective psyche. And this was to say, you are part of a company that is standing up and trying to make a difference and is using its power and potential to start with the people that it cares about most, which is really for Starbucks, everybody that works at Starbucks as a partner and every community that Starbucks is a part of, and then everybody who potentially could go into a Starbucks. So it's not a small, not a small number. It's really anybody and everybody who can recognize and go into a Starbucks. What that means is that this had to be something where we had as many people as possible who could gut check with us Mm -hmm. and who could hold us accountable as partners in this journey and then help Starbucks as they looked at this, not simply as a moment in time, but this was the beginning of many, many other moments that have happened from that point onward to live up to the expectations that were set during that, that session. It's amazing that, I mean, that incident happened a little bit over two years ago, I believe. This training, mm-hmm. of course, has, has occurred. And yes. I, I'm curious now to think about, and, you know, this isn't like, a question I expect you to answer, but like I'm thinking now, especially as we're in this state where 
so many places are closed down mm-hmm. because of you know shelter in place orders, etc. Like, what's going to be the new role of places like these? I guess when the world starts to reopen, you know, like does Starbucks still remain a third place <laughs> now that people have spent so much time in their first place? I don't know. Like that's, <laughs> that's a, a interesting thing to kind of think about. I know like here in Atlanta I'm in, in Georgia, we've been open now open. I'm using air quotes here. We've been open mm. for about three weeks now and people are going out. I have not left the house really yet. I'm going to try to do so sometime this week, probably just to kind of, gird myself to know that this is the world that we live in now. But I mean, I don't know when the time is going to come when people are going to be comfortable. Let me not say that because if we've seen the news, people are comfortable now mm-hmm. with getting together in crowds. Like, yep. but a lot of people probably still aren't like with restaurants and other establishments where you used to be in close quarters. And now, you know, that's not the case. I guess I'm just wondering like how businesses like a Starbucks or something like that will fare in this sort of new world. Now where connections are, distanced in this way? I think it's a great question. And I have the same question (laughs) as well. I think when thinking about things as a third place, right, and this is really an expansive thing, it's anything from your local bar to a church to, you know, so many different things. I think it's, there's the business aspect of it and how that will transform, which I think is a fascinating question. And I'm wondering to see how many, how different kinds of organizations are going to transform in different ways. I'm really fascinated to see what happens in the hospitality industry, what happens with restaurants. But for a place like a Starbucks, it almost seems like the thing that you can look forward to is the ways in which the people who are serving you can bring that extra bit of humanity into your day, right? So much of what people seem to be missing is the intimacy of interactions with one another, not simply the intimacy of familiar interactions, but the intimacy of interactions with people who are just along the journey of their everyday life. And so to have a space where you can go in and a person remembers who you are, remembers your favorite drink, remembers that they haven't seen you for a long time, or just remembers that it is hard for you just as it is hard for them and can not say anything, but still hold that space. I think that's a lot. That's a lot for people when we've been so sort of constrained for the last many months. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how the world starts to change once people are going out and about. I was reading some article today about quarantine bubbles. Have you heard of this phenomenon? Mm -mm. So essentially, there are people who are gathering with other folks who have also been similarly in quarantine for a number of, Ah. you know, a number of weeks or et cetera. And they're sort of forming these social bubbles of just those people. Of course, there's the inherent trust that, The people Mm -hmm. will not break that bubble and be part of other bubbles because that could potentially contaminate the bubble that they're in. It's an interesting concept. I don't subscribe to it, but (laughs) it's interesting that that's a thing that's starting to happen now. I guess, I don't know. It sort of falls to me in the same line of like the super spreaders. Like you hear about, I think there was a guy who was singing in a choir and he ended up infecting the whole choir or something like that. Like it seems like a similar type of thing, just on a smaller scale. That it has the potential to backfire in very large ways. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I haven't heard that term before. I have heard this question of if people just self-quarantine, 
you know, and I think it's 14 days of self-quarantine just to make sure and then get together. Doesn't that create some sort of safety? And then I think, well, there are so many different factors along the path of people getting together and traveling and just so many ways in which that could go wrong. So as cities open up bit by bit, I have this expectation that things are opening up and this the progression won't be linear, right? The progression of things opening up will kind of go back and forth. There will be this ebb and flow of we're more open, then we're less open again. And then we're more open and we're less open. And seeing what happens in the next couple months is really what I want to figure out is, are, are we ready to do that? Knowing that many, many places have been doing this, as you're saying, and the infection rate and all that, I mean, schools are opening up and people are getting infected in some spaces. You know, this is, it's something that I'm being very careful about. Yeah. When I first heard about you, it was from another guest we've had on the show, D'Angela Duff. I believe you were in New York teaching at NYU. This may have been about, I don't know, maybe about two or three years ago, I think. Mm-hmm. Tell me what your experience was like at NYU. NYU was great. I have to say, my experience at NYU was I was teaching in, NYU is very sort of nested in many ways. So I was teaching in the uh, Tandon School of Engineering, and I was teaching courses on interactive narrative. And then I was also helping to host the graduate colloquium there. So a lot of my courses, which it was a mandatory course for all of the engineering students, and the sort of premise that I had, or maybe the the thesis for the course was that as engineers, these students are the material and immaterial creators of the world. And so what my course set them up to understand was that everything is designed And that design is a sort of story that we tell ourselves of what's possible. And because it's a story, it has steps. And because it has steps, those steps can be paused, they can be interrupted, they can be changed, and that you can put space between one step and another to really do deep inquiry into what something is and why it needs to exist. And the way that we started exploring that was through bias. We looked at the construction, one sort of pathway, looking at the construction of femininity through different narratives of Europeans on different maritime vessels meeting Amerindian and West African women for the first time, and the ways in which those bodies were sort of constructed through language, through epistolary notes, and then through drawings, then we would sort of move between that kind of historical account into Nicki Minaj videos. And then I would (laughs) sort of posit that Nicki Minaj's ass is a form of technology. And we talk about the ways in which that worked. And then we would kind of vacillate over to video games. And we would talk about video games that position women's bodies as either commodity or something to be used and abused by other bodies, mostly men. And then we would look at the erasure of trans identities in that. So it was really this kind of sprawling, and I think that was maybe the first month, it was this kind of sprawling (laughs) class to be able to talk about the ways in which stories instruct how we construct and how we conceive of the world. And so D'Angelo, meeting D'Angelo, I think, happened... I was on a panel for new technologists and it was a series of game designers and graphic designers and all of these people and me. And I just remember feeling extremely shy thinking that like my dominant form of creation is not computer based. It's not tool based. It's language. 
And as a person who uses language as a form of technology, how do I fit into this large space of game design? How do I fit into this space of design? How do I fit, in, fit into this space of technology? And those are all really fraught things for me that come with a whole lot of imposter syndrome. And I was presenting some of my work. I was presenting some of my teaching. I'd previously taught at uh, Cornell University. I taught in their English and creative writing departments and their music departments as well. And so D'Angelo and I sort of sparked up a conversation about the role of academics, educators, and practitioners. And it just was, it felt like one of those chance meetings of a person that I deeply respected the moment I met her. And then that blossomed into over time, me then teaching at NYU. Wow. When you look back at that time, what did working there teach you? I'll say when I moved to New York, I really moved to New York to focus on my own writing. My training is as a fiction writer, amongst other things. And I moved to New York City to focus on my writing, which feels like so many different cliches. And I had to make sure (laughs) not to move to Brooklyn because I was like, that is one cliche I'm going to avoid. And then wanted to live uptown. I was like, well, if I move to Harlem, that's a whole different cliche that I'm going to fall into. (laughs) So falling into teaching again after telling myself I wanted to take a break from teaching. And that break wasn't because I didn't want teaching in my life anymore. It was because teaching was something I fell into in graduate school. And it became this thing that was so important to me that I wanted to put so much time and effort into and that I loved so dearly. I really, really love, I love being in a classroom. I love the the place of just sitting with students and throwing ideas around and having fun. And so my time at NYU was probably the first time that I was working at a university where I felt so deeply nested in a, not simply a department, but a community. I think the, and the role that I had allowed me to sort of move between the game center at NYU and and the department that is both games criticism and games design and really engaging with a lot of those students who were my students and a lot of my students who became students at the game center. I was learning so much about what it means to be in these interdisciplinary collaborative spaces. And I was also learning a lot about what it means to have a voice that sits between academia, which is such a beautiful mixture of ideas and practice. And it's just such a, a, a like radiant crucible. And then to also be out in the world doing things at the same time. I'm seeing those, those ideas really kind of put to use at scale so they don't stay within that kind of academic space. So I was really learning what it was to be in a community of practice and thought. And that was a first for me. Now, I want to learn more about kind of where the spark that you have came from. Where did you grow up? I grew up in Buffalo, New York. Okay. I mean, so, you mentioned Cornell, so I, I, I can see that. Was kind of like design and tech and everything kind of a big part of your childhood growing up? No, not at all. I mean, or at least not in a way that I can place now. What was big when I was growing up was story. I was a very, very avid reader all the time. I was someone who would spend my weekends cleaning the house. That was a thing that my brother and I had to do all the time, (laughs) cleaning the house and then reading. And that was my sort of safe space. And then the other thing, maybe to betray what I just said about technology, the other thing that was a big part was video games. And 
I really didn't see it as design and I didn't see video games or writing as an avenue for what I wanted to do. Everything that I wanted to do was wrapped up in science. Mm. I wanted to be an entomologist and then I wanted to be a marine biologist. And then so I went to the University of Miami to pursue marine biology, which sort of transformed into marine biochemistry. And that was all I wanted, that and then medicine. I thought that my whole life would be science. And design came much, much later. Design sort of fell in when I moved to New York and I started seeing all of these people who were talking about human-centered design and design thinking and design became this kind of buzzword. And I was trying to figure out, well, I'm a writer. I'm someone who's been called creative. I'm someone who's been called an academic. I've worked here and there in little ways doing little things. But what is it about design that I keep coming back to. And it just became this word that, that started resonating in different ways as I was meeting more and more people. And then at the same time, I started joining game jams and getting into the, the game design world and started saying, okay, well, what would I be if I decided to make games? Just, hmm. you know, casually make them. And after a few game jams, I started recognizing that no, my skill sets are not in programming. No, my skill sets are not in, you know, audio engineering or in the graphic development of anything. Like my skill is really helping to look across the entire system and really coordinating the actions that help create this larger scope of what the game story and the game narrative can <clears throat> and then linking all of these other beautiful interactive moments together to say, how do we use audio so that it means something for people in this moment? How do we use design as a way to help map that entire system and think about where images should show up and how they tell a different story than language? So I was just seeing myself step into that role more and more. That is so fascinating. I'm, I'm trying to kind of track this trajectory here. So growing up in Buffalo, avid reader, but you were into video games, mm -hmm. but you went to school for marine biology. And then you also m mentioned, this is before we started recording, having an English degree. I'm kind of trying to map how this, <laughs> <laughs> like, how did this all sort of come to play? Were you just doing all of these things at once in school or did some stuff come after you graduate? Like, how did this all come to play? It's a great question. Much to the terror of my family, a lot of it was happening all at once um, <laughs> and not well. I mean, Miami is a beautiful place with a lot of distractions. I was, when I first showed up, so at the University of Miami, the marine science degree is immediately a double major, or at least it was when I was there. So you showed up as a marine science major and then you equipped biology or geology or chemistry or physics. So I immediately showed up as a person who had always been fascinated by cuttlefish and cephalopods in general. And I loved thinking about these deep sea octopuses and just all of these animals that people were pretty terrified of. Mm -hmm. And I showed up wanting that desperately. And I kind of put the, the writing, I always wrote, I always wrote really strange poetry about monsters and demons and ghosts and then really just like philosophical things that are, you know, childish pondering of the nature of reality and, and life. And so these things were always together for me. 
when I was at the University of Miami, I was recognizing that there was something that was missing for me that I wasn't getting in my science classes. And what I found was that I started taking creative writing classes and that felt like I was getting some kind of balance. And during one creative writing class, we had a visiting professor who just kind of took me on and said, I really think that you have something here. And if you want to focus on this, I can recommend someone who could push you in the right direction. And she left. That was Helena Maria Veramontes. And she's just a, a sort of shining light in, in literature for me. She's always one of these people that I come back to as kind of my, one of my origin stories. And she introduced me to a writer and professor and a person who's become a sort of family member. She's like my aunt or my big sister, but M. Evelina Galang at the University of Miami, who really made me prove that I wanted something. She made me prove that I wanted to take writing seriously. And that became this journey where I was engaging in creative writing in a way that brought me away from science. It was all on my terms. It was really me saying, no, there, there is something here that I am getting. And I'm learning how to use story in a way that not only honors the many diverse paths that I would love to take, but all of the sort of ancestors that I carry with me as well. And it was a way of engaging with the world that I had never found in science. So I would say the through line for everything that I've done has always been story. It's always been either absorbing stories to tell them back to people, or it has been in the expressing of my own stories as a way to bring communities together. I just want to express, you know, and for people that are listening, I want you to, to get this, like, it's really something that you went in to college with sort of one thing, but then you realized and connected with so many other people and communities there that allowed you to really branch out in kind of a, a pretty safe, I would say, environment. I mean, as safe as college can be in terms of consequences of failing or something like mm -hmm. that, but being able to explore all of these different options. So then you come out kind of a much more well-rounded person because like i'm curious like what would christian howard the marine biologist look like now exactly if like you just stuck with that and didn't get introduced or i wouldn't even say introduced but really have the opportunity to cultivate these other interests that you have i will say writing is seductive writing is so seductive for people it's this thing where you're you have the freedom to express yourself in different ways you have the freedom to look at other people's expressions and really kind of just fall in love over and over again. It's this uh -huh. process, I mean, reading, especially fiction and poetry, it's this whole process of falling in love and then having your heart broken over and over again. And that becomes addictive. It's why you have young children who are these voracious readers of just being able to absorb and absorb and absorb and say that mode of learning never really ends. I don't know what the marine biologist Christian would have looked like, probably on a boat somewhere, probably living in a different country somewhere. <laughs> I think my fantasy life and all of the sciences were always me in a lab trying to discover the next cure for malaria, cure for cancer. Like I, I had these lofty dreams of being a research scientist, but also a medical doctor. Yeah. Um, I wanted to be a pediatric cardiologist or a pediatric dermatologist and really specialize as much as possible. So it would have been a much more focused, a much more, um, I think, me practicing as a technician in a very different way. Now, one of the jobs that you held after you graduated 
from University of Miami was at Hidden Level Games. Mm-hmm. So you did have this opportunity then to kind of explore the work that you've been doing in an actual kind of game development uh, company. Is that kind of where you got into narrative design? I got into narrative design before joining Hidden Level Games. And I joined Hidden Level Games because I had met Errol King, who is a really great friend of mine now. I think we met at a conference or an event or something. And it was just one of those kind of chance encounters where we kept in touch with one another. And then finally, when we met up, we just realized we had the same sort of geek overlaps, that there was just a lot of affiliation and affinity for manga. There was uh, a large love for video games, a large love for um, Afrosyncratic religions. It was just this mixture of all of the things that were near and dear to me. And when we spoke, he had this idea and this game that was just amazing. It, It was called Beta the Game. And the Game itself helped people, helped young creators primarily to create games and learn how to make games on a coding language that the developers at level games had created themselves. It was a sort of creolized language is the way that I think of it, that it was a mixture of a bunch of different languages. And then that became a really streamlined coding language. And then on top of that, the game helped people to understand how to code and how to make games. Hmm. So I just thought this is everything that I would want. This is the kind of subversive technology that I really have been looking for. The game itself was not something that was created to make money. It was something that was created because Chris and Errol, the two creators, really wanted to make something that they would want to play and something that was in the image of black gamers. And so it evolved into this really elegant platform, but at its base, it was just a way to find representation in technology in a way that it wasn't existing. And then being part of this indie development gaming scene in New York that was so rich and so powerful and has been putting out so many amazing things, you know, in the last couple of years, that all of that for me was something that I said, I want to be a part of this. Mm. When I joined Beta, I was actually working in narrative design and sort of consulting on the side with different young leaders around their purpose and their vision for the companies that they were creating. But I was also working in narrative design in large interactive experiences, in-person interactive experiences and digital. When you look back at your career, I mean, even the work that you're doing now at SY Partners, how would you say your work currently as a strategist is different from some of your earlier work that you've done, like as a designer, as a consultant, etc. Scale is the thing that comes to mind first. And by that, what I mean is I wanted to join SYP because so much of the work that I had been doing had been on this very, very small, one-on-one, intimate scale. That what I was doing was a lot of independent consulting with leaders who were just starting out with a big idea or starting out with a big prototype or starting out with a platform that they had and were trying to figure out how to scale it. And many of those ideas became more and more successful. But a lot of those ideas also didn't come to fruition because the resources weren't there. And that was something that was breaking my heart, seeing these creators that had so much potential and 
so many amazing things that they wanted to bring into the world, but they didn't have the resources to really carry it forward. I wanted to join and be part of something where I could see big ideas actually manifest in the real world and have real impact. And so being in a company where we're working with some of the most influential leaders in the world, I knew that there was a potential for me to create things that helped and create things that were really, that I could actually see that became tangible. Mm, okay. At this point in your career, how do you define success? This is one of those interview questions that is just hard to answer. <laughs> <laughs> I'll say the thing that's coming to mind right now, because I know it's very important for me in all the things that I do, not simply professional work, but the community work that I do, is honoring the legacies that I come from. And what I mean by that is there are so many people, people that I know, people that I don't know, who have created the causes and conditions for me to be where I am and for me to be able to have this sort of meandering path where things don't necessarily make sense and yet they've worked out. So what I see as success for me is being able to really pave the way for people who need an opportunity. I think that I am a person whose story does not compute for people when it's written down on paper. On a resume, I don't make sense. You know, in a flat two-dimensional way, I don't make sense. And so what I wanted and what I always want is to have a space where I can help people who also have a lot of big ideas, big ambitions, and maybe not the clarity to know how to make sense or where to direct that energy and that, that passion. So that's going to be a huge thing for me as I continue on. I have never felt more seen by the phrase, on a resume, I don't make sense. I've never felt more seen from hearing that phrase. I swear to God, because like I kind of I don't want to say that my my path has been been similar to yours, but I mean like I grew up in the sticks in the country, deep South Alabama. Really, actually wanted to be a writer, wanted to be an English major. I wrote all through kindergarten, primary school, middle school, high school. I wrote a lot. I, I was even in college writing courses. Like I. You know, AP English, all that sort of stuff. But like I was taking also like correspondence writing courses and stuff. Wanted to major in, in English. My mom was like, you're not going to make money in that. The scholarship that I ended up getting was a STEM scholarship. Started mm -hmm. out in computer science, computer engineering, dual degree. Changed after the first semester to math. So like my undergrad degree is in math. And then when I graduated, I could not find a decent job. I worked customer service jobs for like three years, you know, just like selling tickets at the symphony telemarketing at the opera. I was a dealer concierge at Auto Trader for a long time. And then finally got like my first web job and did design jobs, I would say for about, uh, let's see, 2005 to 2008, about three, three and a half years or so. Quit, started my own studio, did that for nine years, kind of wound the studio down, got a new job, which is the job that I'm at now that I've been at for mm. a little over two years. So like on paper, like my resume is all over the place. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, like I have these skills in writing and English and entrepreneurship and math and design and, you know, also podcasting and media and all this sort of stuff. And so I, I don't know that phrase when you said that I was like, Oh, I feel that I felt that hundred <laughs> percent. Mm. Yes. So, if, so much. Yeah. If you could sit down with your teenage self, like, what would you tell yourself in terms of like advice or anything? 
There's a part of me that wants to say, don't fight to grow up so quickly. I feel very, very grateful that I don't regret any of the decisions that I made. I left home when I was very, very young for the first time, left and went to Australia and then went to New Zealand when I was, what, 15, 16? Oh, wow. Um, And it was just this thing that I knew I had to do. And my family said, you know, if you can raise the money, you can go. And so through lots of different resources, friends, family, churches, all the things, I found a way to go. And it was just such a huge moment for me to see a world bigger than myself. And I think that growing up, I wanted to get out of Buffalo so much, knowing that the things that I wanted, I could never realize there. Buffalo is still one of the most segregated cities in the United States. It's still one of the most racist cities in the United States. So growing up there was, I like to joke and say that it was kind of this lever to beaver-esque experience of having a family that reminded me that I was important and that I was loved and offered me so many avenues and opportunities to just explore and expand. But I always took it upon myself to say, I need to be the first one to do this. If nobody else is going to do it, I have to do it. If nobody else is going to integrate that space, I have to do it. If nobody else is going to be that person who's the marine biologist, doctor, slash something, something, like I got to do that thing. Hmm. And I put so much pressure on myself. And I think that that helped me in many, many ways. It helped me create different parts of my personality, different parts of who I am that, that really kind of keep me upright. But it also put so much pressure on me that I couldn't fail. I couldn't do anything wrong. And it wasn't that my family was holding me accountable because by and large, I did things and then my family found out. I would go off and I'd do a bunch of, you know, writing to different companies to learn more about how the world worked in business or getting countless different university mailers just so I could understand what it looked like at the age of what, 15 or 13, what it looked like to be in college. I did all of those things on my own and then told my family and I think as impressed as they might have been or as happy that as they might have been that I was young and maybe precocious and interested and curious, I still created this habit of having to do everything in this kind of perfect way. And I think I would go back and tell myself that things are going to be all right and that I can loosen some of that a bit. What advice would you give to anyone out there listening that wants to kind of follow in your footsteps? Like they want to be doing strategy work at a place like SY Partners, or even just kind of doing strategy work in general. What advice would you give them? One thing I would say is reach out to people. Something that I wasn't told until much later, and I think I fell into it in in some ways, but still had so much shame and guilt around it, was I was told that if I wanted these things, I had to follow a certain path, right? If I wanted to be, I never knew that business was going to be the place that I would land in and that it's a place where I would grow really important elements of who I am as a creator. And I was told explicitly by people that if you want to work in anything around consulting or you want to work in anything around business, you need to go back and get an MBA. Mm. And when I look around at the other strategists that I work with, other people in other companies that have similar roles to mine, I look at the diversity of experiences from people who were professional chefs or people who were architects, people who were circus clowns, people who were 
all sorts of things and now end up in this very strange space together. I would tell young people to reach out to the people who don't need to be mentors, don't need to be the person that you're looking up to and say, I really want to be exactly that thing, but just someone who has a path that is strange and that you're piqued by. And I would say, you know, offer up a moment to ask them how they got there or what they did or one thing that they learned along that path or really ask any questions that you have, but just get in touch with people that seem interesting to you. Because I feel like sometimes people look at a title or they look at a company or they look at a path and they, they're just intimidated. Yeah. And I would say, yeah, I understand that. I completely understand that. And there are many of us who have time to reach back to you and say, yes, we will we'll spend a little bit of time to just talk and share. And then there's lots of other people who will actually become a mentor. But you just have to be brave enough to start those conversations. One of the themes that we have for this show, kind of a continuing theme for this year, is like how are people using their skills to kind of build a better future? I mean, I think certainly this pandemic has pulled back the curtain on a lot of things. and We're all looking for a future that is different from the present that we're currently in. But I'll ask you this question. How are you using your skills to help build a more equitable future? A lot of what I try to do is right aspiration, better future, <laughs> big, big concept. <laughs> the most that I can do is aspiration and then just working towards that. But what comes to mind most is being in a space of business strategy, because that is what we do first and foremost. I really, really try and root my practice in what might in some places be called culture strategy or just a deep understanding of the intersections and intersectionalities that inform how people show up in places of work. And so a lot of what I try to do is bring that human level, not simply in how do we create policies or strategies to help people accomplish and achieve what they want to do at work, but how do we really talk about the difficulties and the ways in which people need to be seen and respected and held as full complex humans who are not always okay. And then how do we build strategies that are dynamic and reflexive around those sorts of understandings? I think that for me is how I want to bring justice and equity into everything that I do. And it's not simply the thing that I do at work. It's also the thing that I do in community building as well. So that's my hope is that what I'm doing not simply has an impact with clients, but that it also inspires other people who are around me to at least consider the deeper elements of complex humanity on the path of saying, how do we create more equitable companies? Yeah. Where do you see yourself in the next five years? I have a very strong desire to get back to creating. And by that, what I mean is I create every day at work, but there's something very different about creating for myself. There's something very different about getting back to my fiction writing, getting back to my game design, getting back to producing interactive experiences that are not bound by professional landscape or what I like to say, not bound by capitalism. I want to create things with the freedom and the ferocity of what it means to create because I can't not create. And I think I've been building 
the resources for that, building the the courage for it, but have been in a space of, I think, rebuilding myself professionally. And uh, what I would love to get back to is that space of courage that I had years ago when I could just sit down and create something without all the trappings of how is this going to be something or mean something or do something. I just Mm -hmm. want to create because creation is what I do. Well, just to kind of wrap things up here, where can our audience find out more about you and about your work online? You can check out my website, which is my full name. It's Christian Howard or it's Christian M Howard.com. And you can find me on Twitter at C how we run C H O W I E R U N. And then you can find me on LinkedIn as well. All right. Sounds good. Well, Christian Howard, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. You know, I know it's been a while we have been trying to coordinate and and get this interview together because I was really just fascinated by the work that you do. I think I was initially hearing about you as a narrative designer and was like, oh, what does that mean? But then Mm -hmm. now as you kind of explain the work that you do as a strategist and how you're able to kind of weave in all of these other interests that you have with writing and game design and everything it gives someone like me hope that is also kind of a a multi-potential kind of person mm-hmm. to know that there's a way that you can kind of carve out a path for yourself that doesn't necessarily have to fit in one particular sort of box i mean actually my my current title is creative strategist so i kind of I vibe with that a lot and hopefully people that are listening can get that too you know one of the the great things about revision path is showing that there are people that can come from all sorts of backgrounds that can have all sorts of interests and still find a way in the creative industry by forging their own path. And it really sounds like you've not only been able to do that, but you're continuing to do that. So I just want to thank you again so much for coming on the show, sharing your story and everything. I really appreciate it. It's my pleasure. I'm so glad that we could have this time together. And I thank you for following up and for just opening the space for me and other people. I so appreciate it. Big, big thanks to Christian Howard. And of course, thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about Christian and his work through the links in the show notes at revisionpath.com. And of course, thanks to our sponsor for this episode, Facebook Design. To learn more about how the Facebook design community is designing for human needs at unprecedented scale, please visit facebook.design. Revision Path is brought to you by Lunch, a multidisciplinary creative studio in Atlanta, Georgia. Are you looking for some creative consulting for your next project? Then let's do lunch. Visit us at yepitslunch.com. I'll put a link in the show notes. This podcast is created, hosted, and produced by me, Maurice Cherry, with engineering and editing by RJ Basilio. Our intro voiceover is by Music Man Dre, with intro and outro music by Yellow Speaker. So what did you think of this episode? Hit us up on Twitter or Instagram, or even better, by leaving us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. I'll even read your review right here on the show. As always, thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.